Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars and occasional other guests to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Today's guest, Dennis McCarthy, is the author of the novel The Gospel According to Billy the Kid, published this past month by the University of New Mexico Press and available everywhere. A native of Knoxville, Tennessee, Dennis McCarthy has been a park ranger, ecologist, speechwriter, editor-in-chief, professor, and attorney. For the listeners of the podcast saying to themselves right now, wait, I thought this was about the other McCarthy. Well, yes, this is Cormac's brother. And after a lifetime of avoiding following in his famous older f- brother's footsteps, he's written this excellent novel. He's currently at work on his second novel, and he and his wife and his beagle, Sammy, live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Dennis, it occurred to me, I asked your dog's name, and I forgot to ask your wife's name again. Is it Judy? It is Judy. Very good. It's, it's a, Judy and, and Sammy and Dennis all live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And thank you very much for coming on uh, the podcast today, Dennis. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Now, the first thing I notice as a lifetime academic who has done a few knockaround jobs in my time, you spent a lot of time in college, PhD in ecology from University of Tennessee, a master's in zoology from Michigan State University, and then you come back for a JD from College of Law at the University of Tennessee. I, I feel like you must have gotten amongst the Yankees and thought you had to get back to Tennessee after that time, but uh, you, a lot of time in school, but you... You worked mostly as an attorney for a while and then an editor for a while, correct? Uh, yes, that's true. And and yes, I have spent uh, too much of my life in uh, universities. I had a love-hate with them. Uh, I'd go to school and uh, really get excited about a subject. And before I knew it, I was uh, anxious to get out into the real world again. So I just kept going and coming. But uh, I finally finished up and I'm now 77, and I don't expect to go back for another degree. Never say never. You might you might find yourself getting interested in uh, Native American studies or something like that, or, or uh, historical studies of the Old West. The reality is, if I were going back to school right now, you just hit on the topic that I would be in, the historic studies of the Old West. Well, and you're living in a place that is absolutely rich with that history between the various Native American tribes from Santa Fe and Kit Carson and Billy the Kid. Can you uh, give us just a brief overview of the novel, what it's about? Well, the novel begins as sort of a a straight story about Billy the Kid as we know it or as we think we know it. And then it uh, begins to chart off into a different direction. There were uh, Pat Garrett, who wrote the original story and laid the foundation for Billy the Kid, the Authentic Life of Billy the Kid was the name of his book. Turns out he did not write it. Ash Epson, who was a journalist, wrote it. Ash whipped huh. it out in about six weeks. And when I first read the book, I was quite fascinated by it. Uh, but when I came back to New Mexico many, many years later and began looking into Billy the Kid and thinking about the fact that this man has been so famous uh, and uh, had such a such an unusual career in that he's become the most famous outlaw in the world. And the more I read about him, I realized, hold it. The story that Pat Garrett 
it's mostly fiction. Right. And uh, so I began looking at that, and uh, and that's pretty much what got me started writing on this. And uh, there was another character who came along in the 1948-49 period who turned out uh, he had, had made no claims for being Billy the Kid up to that point. But the story about him is is a long and a complicated story, and I'm not going to get into it now because uh, we would be here for half a day, just, <laughs> just the introduction. But he, he told a different story. And... And my story is this: is that Bill Roberts character who claimed to be Billy the Kid eventually, and he survived obviously since he was uh, still around in the late forties. Uh, he he survived the killing of Billy the Kid at Fort Sumner in 1883, and he had a life after that. And and that's a, sort of the direction I went after I told the traditional story. But of course, it's all fiction. I just made it all up. Yes. Well, and I think that was one of the questions I might ask you is how much uh, your historical research plays into it. And we still might come back to that. So structurally, you take this, a what we'd call a post facto approach to it. You have the much older uh, Billy running into a former uh, acquaintance of his who's a good f- uh, brother to one of his good friends, or I guess a very brief, but very intense friendship he has that you describe in the novel. and he's telling the story. So it reminds us a little bit of Ishmael and Moby Dick, who's looking back on what's happened and Huckleberry Finn, who looks back and says, if I'd known what a rotten chore it was to write a book, I wouldn't have done it. I ain't going to do it no more. Although you've promised us a second novel and I am looking forward to it. Can you tell us a little bit about who our primary characters are? I know first, obviously is Billy. Billy, of course. Yes, he is the primary character and he is the main character in the first half of the book for sure. One of the problems in writing this story was uh, it's a story, the first half of the book is the story of about three years in uh, when the Lincoln County War took place. And the Lincoln County War is full of characters. And that that was a problem in itself. And in fact, when in early drafts that I had, I just had way, way, way too many characters. And so I right. just slimmed them down considerably. Uh, I joined characters together, and uh, so things that people think, no, hold it, that's not, that didn't happen to him, that happened to the other guy. Well, that's true, but I didn't want to bring the other guy into the book. Right. Uh, so, so in the first half of the book, uh, I guess the primary characters are Billy the Kid. Uh, he had a, a group of friends, and some of them didn't live very long, so there's not a whole lot said about them. Pat Garrett, of course, who was the one who hunted Billy Dan, is a major character. And the major characters in, in the Lincoln County War itself were uh, Alexander McSwain, who was a lawyer. Uh, John Chisholm was there. Those are certainly probably some of the more famous characters. There were lesser known characters like, uh, like uh, well, of course, John Tunstall was an important character in the very beginning because his death right. ended, uh, started the war. But uh, but he has a very short right. role in the film, uh, in the film, in the book. <laughs> in the novel. And Billy the Kid has been filmed a number of times in different stories, right? I remember the uh, Young Guns film that was so popular in a sequel back in the 80s. That's right. And, and if you remember Young Guns, you might remember Young Guns too. 
because Young Guns 2 begins with Bill Roberts. You That's probably, right. Oh, well, all right. You have a good one. I, I do recollect it because, I, well, I knew when I'd read this, I'd read the Bill Roberts story somewhere before, and I was thinking, where have I first discovered it? And I've read it in a, in a book, but I think I did first hear about it in, in Young okay. Guns 2. All right. Well, then, then you're all set. When you started reading the book, you knew what was happening. <laughs> one of the things that was interesting to me about your choice here is there has been in the last, I guess we'd say 30 years, there's been a really a, a revival of what I would say is very literary Westerns. So in the, in the wake of, you know, after the kind of shoot 'em up Westerns, uh, the Max Brand and Zane Gray back in the Zane Gray in the twenties and thirties, Max Brand in the thirties, forties, Louis L'Amour in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, after those have all kind of died down. Then we have Larry McMurtry with the Lonesome Dove novels, and then even at more literary level, uh, Ron Hansen's The Kid, the one about Jesse James, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, right. uh, which is a wonderful novel. Um, and also some the novel for Deadwood by Pete Dexter. So just a lot of really great, well-written Westerns out there, which I don't know that anyone saw coming in the seventies as it died in the films and in the eighties so much with, and with all the you know revisionism you see in some of them. Well, now when you mention literary less, uh, Westerns, please let's not forget Cormac McCarthy. A- absolutely. And uh, well, and I'm one of those, thank you very much because that is a very important correction. Uh, I'm one of those who sees his, his work into Westerns as elevating the form so much that I, I really I only think of the genre tropes that he uses in those as a way of kind of subverting them or changing them or overcoming them. Uh, and I'm not sure all those other novels I listed operate at that same level. Um, I, I certainly don't think Lonesome Dove, for example, functions on the level that Blood Meridian does or All the Pretty Horses does, but I'm biased there. Virtually nothing does. They've, Virtually they've, nothing does. I, I think we're in a very short list of maybe three or four books when it's all said and done yeah. when we're talking about it. Yeah, that, that's correct. What kind of attracted you particularly about Billy the Kid? Was it living in Santa Fe? Was it more than that? Well, I got interested in Billy because when I came back out here to Santa Fe, I had visited out here years before. Cormac moved out here 20, 25 years ago, and my wife and I would come out and visit him occasionally. And uh, and it was on, actually it was on one of those early visits that I, I read uh, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. When I came back out here, when I retired about 10 years ago uh, and came back out and had spent a little time in Lincoln County, where a large part of the story takes place, I really got more and more interested in Billy the Kid. And the more I looked at him, I, well, for starters, I was curious about why he had uh, become so famous when nobody knew anything about him. For starters, right. you know, we don't know what his name is. We don't know where he was born. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know where he's buried. Even if you take the straight stories, you know, if you took Pat Garrett's story and said, uh, uh, "This is this is absolute true," well, it's not. You know, it's a, right. it's a total piece of fiction. But you know, it's a penny dreadful. But even where they think he's buried, they don't know where he's buried. I mean, they know he's buried in a cemetery, but that's about all. Anyway, there was so there was that part of the problem. 
We don't. We know very little about this character, and what we do know is basically the Lincoln County War, which was uh, actually a pretty brief period of time. So I began reading what other people said about Billy, the memoirs and so on. And the more I read, everybody had a different story about him. So he was a different character depending upon who you were, which made it even, even more curious. And I got thinking about that and, and was trying to figure it all out. So I started writing about it to see if I could make sense out of the whole thing. Make sense to me. I mean, I wasn't writing for anybody else, really. You know, this was my first. I've been a writer all my life, but I never wrote fiction, never even conceived right. of writing fiction. Uh, you know, one fiction writer in the family is way too many. <laughs> <laughs> Any fiction who's got one will tell you that. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I just never even thought about it. But a friend of mine goaded me to doing it because we had written emails back and forth and so on. He said, you know, you're, you're a pretty good writer. Why don't you write something? And, and so that kind of got me started. And I started working on this and finding, trying to figure out who he was and trying to figure out why he had become so famous. And one of the things he had become so famous for, one of the reasons why he became so famous was because he was a mystery man. He was a man for all seasons. You could take him for whatever thing, whatever character you needed, you could warp Billy the Kid into that personality to fill that need. In fact, this came out over generations. Uh, Billy changed enormously. Sometimes he was a good guy, sometimes he was a bad guy, sometimes he was a wonderful human being, sometimes he was evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's sort of where I got started. But when I got actually writing into the book, Billy took over. And, uh, I, you know, as it was, I hadn't gotten about third way through the book before all of a sudden I had no idea where this thing was going. And there were lots of surprises on after every corner. That's wonderful. And I think that's one of the experiences you hear about from writers that makes writing the book worthwhile is that whatever they may have plotted out in the beginning, it doesn't matter because the book's going to go where the book needs to go. That's right. Uh, kind of like following his dog, mangle out into the desert somewhere. It's going to wander wherever it wants to wander. Yeah. Uh, speaking of one of the most appropriately named characters in the history of fiction, by the way, <laughs> the, the dog mangle. Uh, when you, you're talking about the ambiguous qualities of the kid and how he's kind of a cipher and he becomes all these, these people you know, or all these different things to all these different readers. It, it leads me to think of two different things. I, I don't know if you read enough, many comic books growing up, and I discovered these comic books, you know, in reprint later, but all the characters in comic books were something the kid. It was a rawhide kid, the two-gun kid, kid cold outlaw. So it was always the kid. And then, of course, you have the Ringo kid, which is a real-life guy, I guess, in Tombstone that was showed up in very weird ways in different films. Think of the... John Wayne and in, in Stagecoach is a Ringo kid, but he has nothing to do with the real life uh, Ringo kid. Right. And there's some, and then of course that brings us back around to Blood Meridian, where until the last few pages of the novel, when he's an older man, we have the kid without name and without. We don't know too much other than that rough time growing up in in Tennessee. What is what his life is like before and just who he is. Again, he becomes that kind of mysterious whoever we want 
this character to be in some ways to, to a lot of us. And I wonder if it's related to all these kid characters coming out of the West as well. There were lots of outlaws who were called the kid, you know, with the various things. In fact, in 1880, when Billy the Kid is uh, really coming into his own, there are two Billy the Kids in New Mexico. <laughs> uh, there are two outlaw Billy the Kids in New Mexico. That's, no wonder there's confusion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There was confusion. And, uh, and interestingly, uh, you know, the other Billy the Kid was, was a stagecoach robber. Oh. And he worked out of uh, northern New Mexico, uh, out of uh, north of Santa Fe, and around Trinidad, Colorado, and southern Colorado. And he was, you know, he was fairly uh, notorious in his day. And there was a lot of stuff going on. And there is a, uh, a sister Blandina hmm. who uh, lived at that time, who is a very interesting woman in her own right. And uh, she wrote a couple of books about her life uh, in, in this part of the country. And in, in one of the episodes, she glares down Billy the Kid when he's robbing her stagecoach and she's <laughs> enormously polite to her. And people think that's the Billy the Kid that we're talking about, but it's not. It's a totally It's not. It's the other. It's not the Billy Bonnie Billy the Kid. No, it's not. No. And with uh, with Kid Antrim and in Ron Hansen's novel, which we've discussed some, he makes Kid Antrim, Henry Antrim, and Billy the Kid the same person, right? Isn't that the path he takes in that novel? And yes, and everybody takes that position. I'm the first person as, that I've ever heard of that split Billy the Kid up into two different people. Uh, but you know, it was a uh, Part of part of the rationale behind all of that, and and taking the stories that people think they know and switching them around, is just trying to get the point across that hold it. Who is this character? This is not who. <laughs> if you right. knew anything about Billy the Kid, you know you would look at that and you'd say, "Hold it! I got to go back and, and read the books here. I'm I'm getting real confused." Uh, yeah, I I split Billy the Kid into two characters. Uh, and uh, didn't pull them together as Billy the Kid until the Billy in my character picks up a copy of uh, the, the Pat Garrett's novel and reads it and realizes, oh, my God, Billy the Kid, where did that name come from? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. And when he talks to Pat Garrett afterward, he says, you know, you know, you you sort of confused me with, with Kid Antrim and Jesse Evans and, and a few other people. But... People were doing that in real life, and uh, and it kind of got squeezed in in the in the historical thing. Well, and that that encounter between he and Pat Garrett is so. I don't want to give away too much of a spoiler for readers, but I will say that if you're expecting the great Gunsmoke style, forty feet apart in the street showdown, it goes a very different route, and it's very satisfying and very creative. And well, the reality is, and well, I say the reality. As near as I can tell, the reality is that Billy and Pat had known each other in earlier time. Pat was a, a wrestler, 
you know, he was a cattle rustler, just like Billy was. Uh, Billy made a living at that. And uh, playing Monty, you know, playing cards. Uh, they had known each other. They had probably worked together. And in afterlife, after uh, when Pat killed off Billy the Kid and was talking about him to other people in later life, he was an he said Billy was a wonderful character. Not a wonderful character. He said he was a wonderful young man. He was bright and he was honest and and he and uh, he was as loyal as anybody you'll ever meet. And uh, he took care of his friends. And uh, he said the only reason he did the things he did was he was forced into it. Right. And that's that's a pretty unusual thing for somebody to say. And that was recorded by uh, Miguel. Otero, who was the uh, one of the last governors of Arizona Territory, who had and wrote a book about Billy the Kid, and he had he had talked with Pat Garrett years after the after the fact and had just talked to him about it because he'd known Otero had known Billy the Kid too, and this is what uh, Garrett told Otero. Now, did Otero make it up? I don't think so. And it's fascinating how literary these New Mexico and Arizona politicians and people are at this time with Lou Wallace writing Ben-Hur and, and Otero writing this book. And even, I guess, Pat Garrett, it's more what we might see today where a kind of small time celebrity has a ghostwriter come in and say, we can make a big deal out of you. But still, it's it's just fascinating that when we think of the Old West, we do tend to you know develop a certain stereotype in mind. And then you hear about, well, this governor wrote this book, this governor wrote that book, right. and it challenges those preconceptions. Yes, yes. I was just going to say, you know, Ash Epson was a journalist. He was the one who actually wrote the book, and you know, he was he was a he was a fine journalist and uh, mm. probably a fairly educated man. And a lot of people were educated. One of the characters in the book, he's, he's an outlaw with Billy the Kid. His name was Wait, uh, but uh, he went back to uh, he was he was Chickasaw Indian, and he went back to the territories. And he'd been to college before he'd gotten all tied up in, in all of this uh, shoot him out stuff. Mm. He had gone to college long before he became a gun hand, and he went back to the Indian Territory and uh, became a politician, basically. It sounded like you just had to do an immense amount of research. Did it take you a really long time? No, I, no it was – I did do a lot of research, but – you know, I was just interested in the area and I just going to uh, going to garage sales, going to estate sales and finding going to library sales and finding old memoirs because there's an awful lot of stuff out in this part of the world. You know, people who had libraries, they, they have a lot of that kind of stuff. And I just began reading. Them. It's just it was just all quite fascinating. It's very fascinating. get to about probably I was originally saying 50% of the way but really more like 40 45% of the way through the novel and then there's an incredible pivot point where the importance of faith and belief and things like that in the second half of the novel seem to become really important um, could you talk about that a little bit well as i mentioned earlier i didn't know where this book was going 
okay? And uh, there is a monastery, a Benedictine monastery. Huh. It's up on the Chama River. It's about an hour and a half out of Santa Fe. And my wife and I go up there with, with some regularity. It's a very interesting place, actually. Uh, we've taken a lot of friends there. I'm Catholic, you know, by an Irish Catholic name. We've gone up there and done retreats and, and been there. One day I was there with my wife and all the other people. We were the only Catholics there. There was a Methodist minister there. Uh, there was a, uh, a rabbi. There was another minister from an, another church. I can't remember now what it was. You know, there were a, a dozen people there, and Judy and I were the only two Catholics there. So it's a kind of place that draws people, and it has a special power. To me, it has it's a spiritual. It has a real spiritual power, and I've taken people up there who were uh, atheists, and they say, you know, if the spirit is palpable here. So we were up there one time, and I would be up there for several days, and uh, and I was writing at the time. And I was sitting in the uh, in the church there, and and all of a sudden, Billy just popped in my head, and he said, "I'm supposed to be here too." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that was quite a shock. <laughs> and 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 the story just took a one eight. Well, I won't say it took a one eighty. It, it probably took a ninety degree turn at that point. And it just went off on its own direction. And, and that monastery was built uh, 100 years after the monastery that's in this book. The, never, the monastery that I describe in the book is on the same spot, but that non- monastery never existed. It's fascinating. And, of course, he makes his uh, friendship with Brother Carlos there. And that movement towards faith is where the I think the title of the novel comes in, wouldn't you say? Yes, certainly. You could you could read the title and then you know about three pages into the book in the prologue, uh, Billy says, "Garrett wrote this book and I don't know what it's all about, but I'm, I'm what I'm going to tell you is the gospel truth." Right. So that sort of takes away the spirituality of it for anybody who's thinking, "Oh my God, what's where is this thing headed?" Right. But then I sneak it back in, and. It was interesting. There was a, a really quite wonderful review, uh, if you call them that, in Amazon. And the guy who wrote it, he talked about all these little stories as parables. And I thought, that's really quite delightful, because I hadn't thought about those stories as being parables. But this book is just full of little stories, little anecdotal things. And every one of them has a purpose, and it's going in a particular direction. And the guy who was writing this said, yeah, these are little parables and it makes it the gospel. And I thought, wow, there's a real insight. There's a, there's a very observant reader. And I like that. So, yeah. So the gospel, it comes in in, in various places eventually through the book. It really does give the novel a, a, a level of, of weight and insight and thoughtfulness that I don't know that in the first 40 pages I saw coming. I was enjoying the the quality of the prose. And as I probably made pretty clear before, I love Westerns of any sort from the highest to really pretty much to the lowest as well. Um, and in this case, so it really, the novel just sells in the second half and it's just lovely to see. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed it. Of course, the first half, a lot of it, I was working with material that was already out there. You know, I was making it my own, but it, but there was a storyline that I was trying to follow. But, well, really, once we got to the fact that Billy was not killed, but survived Fort Sumner, right. then it was and it was open season for whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> Free reign at that point. It was. When I think of one of another great literary Western, I think of True Grit. Mm-hmm. And I'm a fan of both movie versions, the, the John Wayne, particularly for the writing with the reins in his teeth scene against Robert Duvall, but also the Cohen brothers scene. There's one, one scene I can't watch in either of those. And that's when the girl falls into the rattlesnake pit. And so we had the rattlesnake den in that novel by Portis and the film versions we have in the road by Cormac, we have that flashback with the, uh, the father character thinking of, the giant bolus of serpents uncovered under the ground. And then we have the rattlesnakes and a rattlesnake then playing an important part. in after this pivot point in the novel, were you thinking of things like serpents in the garden of Eden when you're writing that, or is it more that they're everywhere in New Mexico or is it a little bit of both or snakes play, play a big role in this, in this book, actually, you know, there are lots of scenes about snakes. There's a lot of talk about snakes. And so, Certainly, there is there's a connection there. Okay, and and I to me that's just something that the reader can take and you know you can read it any at le, any level you want to. Yes, sir. Uh, well, and as someone who's somewhat petrified of poisonous snakes himself, I take great glee when Billy is able to deal with them sometimes, but then horror at other times where things are a little more complicated. This novel has more interesting animals in it that I'm used to seeing a lot of novels. So we have, again, the great dog Mangle, who I think probably is maybe a little tougher than Sammy, although I don't want to presume that Sammy as a beagle couldn't handle bears and cougars and the like the way Mangle does. <laughs> but uh, then we have the old, the bear old Mose, which in some ways reminds us of a dark and evil version of the one that we see from, you know, Faulkner's the bear, but in this case, not just a huge old black bear out in the swamps and woods, but the the giant ferocious grizzly. And then we have the crow brother Jude. And uh, so all of these are just fascinating with the way they help us in the, in the novel. And Mango really does become a really serious character in his own right. Doesn't he? Oh, yes. He's a main character. He absolutely (laughs) is a main character. It almost could have been called the gospel according to Mangle, uh, given away, given away things going for, for poor Mangle at times. There's one point in which he says, you know, that Brother Charles told me that, uh, you know, when I asked him about dogs in heaven. And yes, there's that feeling, there's that feeling in the book that, and it's, it's someplace it mentions that it says, if there is a heaven, then dogs have as much right to be there and, and probably more right than we have. Right. And and I believe that, you know, I, I, they're very spiritual animals, you know, and they have a wonderful sense of kindness and, and loyalty. They're better than we are. They really are. And, and as a serious dog lover myself, I, th- I think they're the only animal that will consistently choose 
the welfare of people around it and its humans over their own welfare. Absolutely. Most humans won't make that choice. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. uh, occasionally they might, but, but a dog, you know, loves uh, unreservedly with his whole heart and they're, they're really special that way. Yeah. Well, my wife is not in great health and this little beagle that we have, she's uh, three years old, a little over three years old. She's a small beagle and she's afraid of signs and there are things that spook her pretty badly, but she is so, so incredibly protective of Judy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and it amazes me, just amazes me. It's really a a special relationship. And I'm always astounded when I run into people who, who don't like dogs or who are frightened of them. And of course, some dogs can be scary, but I always think you just need to get the right dog and it's out there somewhere if you look for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the people who don't like dogs, it's, they don't like them because they don't know anything about They them. haven't been around them enough, right? Yeah. So one of the things that was fascinating, last on my last podcast, I had Brian Gimza on to talk about Southern literature and uh, the work of, of Cormac. And at one point we were talking about how much we, I don't know if he had read the novel yet, I just finished it. And I was saying how the press materials don't play up the fact that uh, Cormac is your brother and you're really standing on your own feet there. Can you tell me about that decision? Yeah, I sort of felt it was the way I ought to go, really. I've not advertised the fact. I've met a lot of people and over the years and talked about various things. And I, I never mentioned the fact that he's my brother. And it's not because, because he's a writer and uh, he's telling family secrets and, and the family hates him or anything like that. Clark's <laughs> one of my best friends. Right. We have been, we have been close all my life. He's 10 years older than me. Uh, he took care of me when I was a little kid. I would, in my family, there were six kids, and there were three older and three younger, and there's a gap between them. And I was at the bottom of the heap. I was the youngest, and and uh, my oldest sisters and and Cormac, you know, they were parental figures to me at that point, and they were wonderful. And Cormac's been wonderful for me. Judy and I are out here in Santa Fe because he's out here. Oh, that's wonderful. And uh, you know, it's just it was interesting. I. I can't remember what the circumstance was, but at one point I asked him, I, I said, I can't remember the circumstance, so it really doesn't matter. But I asked him, I said, do you mind if I use your name for something? And he said, oh, no, absolutely. Go ahead. Might as well take advantage of it. So you know, he's completely fine with that. He really is. He doesn't mind me using his name. But somehow or other, it just, I don't know, it just doesn't sit well with me to go in and say, well, and I'm Cormac McCarthy's brother, so pay attention. You know, that's just kind of stupid. Right. And you've been very successful in your own career and you've carried your own freight, as my my father used to say. And and you've certainly written a wonderful book here that for sure stands on its own two feet. Were you reluctant to share it with him? I was. I, I really was. I figured at some point I would share it with him. But as it was going along, I he had no idea I was writing it. <laughs> and uh, 
finally he said to Judy one day, what's Dennis doing? You know, he's out here, he's retired, you know, is he, is he just not doing anything with his life? It's, you know, it's ridiculous. He should be doing something. What's <laughs> going on? And so she kind of broke the word. And, and she told me, you need to tell your brother that you're writing a novel. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did. He was actually pretty good about it. Yeah, well, he was more than pretty good about it. I shouldn't say that. I mean, he was actually, he was fine with it. He was happy to know, for starters, he was just relieved to know that I wasn't just in the house all day drinking vodka or whatever. <laughs> Playing video games all hours of the night, things like that. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, I hope you share it with me at some point. And, and ultimately, uh, I did share it with him after I was pretty far along, but I wanted to be real far along before I showed it to him. When I teach the, the autobiography of Ben Franklin to my students, Dennis, there's a scene where he goes in his apprentice to his older brother. And I t- always try to crack up my students by saying, can you imagine being anything worse than being the brother of Ben Franklin when you go home for a Thanksgiving dinner and your mom says, well, Ben wrote the first important papers in physics on electricity. What have you done today, James? And <laughs> Ben's going to you know, help frame the American Constitution and help us with the Declaration of Independence. What are you going to do today, James? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure he's very proud of you for this novel. I do think it you've chosen just such an interesting field and such an interesting area. And one of the other questions I've prepared was, you know, given your long career and all the writing you've done between legal writing and writing for ecology and the editing you did, you've been a writer for so long. Had you harbored this idea of fiction writing or was it, I guess you said earlier that it's really something that came on you after you've been retired out in New Mexico. No, I I never thought about, uh, I thought over the years about writing a book. Okay. But I never thought about writing a fiction book. And I thought, sort of thought, well, you know, when I retire, there are a lot of things that I'm interested in and uh, you know, it might be an opportunity to sit down and uh, start writing essays or something like that. But no, uh, fiction was, was really out of the question. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've turned to it and I'm looking forward to the, the next one. Have, have you already started on it or do you kind of know where you're headed with it? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I've started on it and, and I had sort of a rough outline in my head of where it's going. But if it's too soon to share, we certainly understand that. <laughs> well, I will. I will tell you. It starts out in Ireland at, in the at the time of the Irish uh, famine. Okay, and uh, some bad things happen, and somebody gets killed, mm. and this and this kid, another kid. Well, he is a kid, but <laughs> he's not called a kid. Uh, but I guess in Ireland he was called the lad, uh, and he sneaks on board a ship and comes to the United States. And ultimately, he, he heads west and uh, gets in the, joins the armed forces and winds up in the 7th Cavalry, wow. and there are the possibilities about that and so on. And I've even got a notion that in the end, he, come, he survives Little Bighorn and comes back to the Aran Islands. Uh, and in fact, uh, I'm going to have him teach John Billington sing Irish. Ah. Uh, but where the story is going to go and what happens, I've got a few ideas of some of the themes, but you know, when I get in deep into it, it's going to, it's going to take a life of its own and it'll tell me where it's going. Right. It'll, you'll have its own version of mangle in it for you to follow around and figure out. <laughs> I just hope you give him another good dog. Well, actually it's the whole problem starts over 
a terrier that he's got. Oh, excellent. That's how the uh, the killing uh, happens all over the dog. Well, are there are there any? I, I think I have one other question maybe to ask you about from your Knoxville days, which you should feel free to ignore. But it's it's one of those totally useless questions, which I think has burdened many Cormac scholars. Which is, what did you think when he changed his name to Cormac? Well, he had, had a bunch of names growing up, right? Okay, and in in fact, my oldest. My oldest living sister still refers to, still calls him Doc, ah. because when he was a kid, he was a big fan of Bugs Bunny and used to say, "What's up, Doc?" <laughs> and so he got the name Doc, uh, but that was a you know that was a, a later name. But so you know, he just had a lot of names, and our father's name was Charles McCarthy, and Cormac's name was Charles McCarthy. He was junior. You know, he just. He wanted to set out on his own. He didn't want the, the family ties. Uh, Cormac McCarthy was uh, a famous Irish, Irish king. Irish king uh, built Barney Castle. The whole family's been to Barney Castle at one point or another. And it just, I think it just had a nice ring to it. Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. Is, is there a particular page you would care to, or two, you'd like to read to us, Dennis? Okay. Uh, it comes in in a section where this is, where Billy is with Brother Charles, and they are on their way to a uh, bandolier, what today is called Bandolier National Park, or National Monument, rather. Uh, and they meet Bandelier, Adolf Bandelier, when they get there. Uh, but they're on the way to it, and uh, and they're just at, and they're just talking about some stuff. And uh, and it's you know it's it's four pages. Okay. It begins on page one eleven. If you've got the book there in front of you, it was a magnificent morning when we reached the crest of the mesa. The air was crisp, the sky cloudless. Far below the cottonwoods traced the path of the Rio Chama. Across the canyon floor. We've we've been blessed this morning, Brother Charles. Blessed indeed, Brother Billy. What could go wrong on a day like this? As we continued up the mountain, the pinyons and junipers gave way to ponderosa. Huge trees, tall and straight, bare branches the first 50 feet. The ground was buried a foot thick in pine needles. The calls of nuthatches and jays echoed through the forest. The trees put out an incense that smells like vanilla. I'd heard of forests being a kind of a cathedral. This was that kind of place. When we got off on Mickey Free, I was telling you about an adventure in Sonora, Brother Charles said. I was walking in the mountains one morning, not much younger than you. I saw a rattlesnake curled up under a rock ledge. A rock squirrel happened by and stopped right in front of the snake. With his front paws, he kicked dirt and full of dirt the snake would strike at the squirrel. It just lay there. Before long, it was completely covered. The squirrel seemed satisfied and sauntered on. In a few minutes, a towhee hopped by. When it was within range, the snake exploded from under the ledge and grabbed it. When the bird stopped flapping, the snake swallowed it head first, then disappeared under the rock. What was the snake doing? I asked. I don't know. 
Later in that morning, we were climbing up a rocky ledge. Brother Charles was behind me. Off to my right, I heard a rattle, not more than a foot or two from my head. I reached for my six-shooter and fired about the time the rattler launched off the ledge. His head exploded just before he slammed into my chest. Put the madre, that old boy scared the piss out of me. My nerves ain't as steady around rattlers as they are around Dolan's boys. That's the second time I'd had a run-in with a striking snake. The first time was in the saloon in Mora. Fred Waite was with me. The saloon keeper kept a rattler in a glass jar on the bar. I told your brother about it. You touch that jar, Fred said. That snake will strike. You'll jump like a jackrabbit. I wouldn't, I said. You wouldn't, huh? No, I wouldn't. You'd be the first. A blind man couldn't hang on when that there rattler strikes. Then I'm the first. You seem pretty sure of yourself, the barkeep said. Yes, sir. I'll tell you what. I'll bet you a double eagle to a quarter eagle you can't hold your finger against that jar for 30 seconds. Fred tried to talk me down, but I wasn't about to pass on the bet. This will be the easiest money I ever earn, I said. The barkeep laid a double eagle on the bar. Show me your money, son. I fished a coin out of my pocket and slapped it on top of his. I reached over and touched the jar. Start counting. When the snake struck, I near fell off the stool. After the second try, the barkeep gave me a whiskey to steady my nerve. I was a double eagle poorer when I left and would have lost my six-shooter if Fred hadn't have dragged me out. That night, Brother Charles and me camped among the Ponderosas on the side of the Jemez Mountain. It was a crisp fall evening. The moon was out. The pine needles were soft. A lion had left his scrape a little down the hill. A day-old pile of pine straw as big as a man's head, reeking of cat piss. Monhouse studied a while. I fixed supper. A porcupine ambled by to inspect the new neighbors. This day's as good as it gets, I said over supper. I'm as content as a cat in a hamper. I know what you mean, Billy. Today was as close as a mystical experience for me. Ain't sure what you mean. Mystical? Yeah. It's a tough concept. Mystical means, well, coming directly from God. Padre Ramon's a mystic. His mind is not clouded by the anger, the fear, the turmoil that race through our minds, always looking for answers. Mystics just are. They accept things as they are. The rest of us are looking instead of seeing, listening instead of hearing. I suspect that animals aren't looking for answers. They just are. Wanting answers makes us human. Did the rock squirrel want answers? We do. That's why you asked me what the squirrel was doing. How about the rattlesnake or the rattlesnake in the jar? Is Monhal? Monhal just is. He may have a better grip on reality than us more rational beasts. After Brother Charles was snoring, I lay in my bedroll pondering what he meant when he said Monhal just is. Porcupine nosed around the campsite. Porcupines like the salt on adhazes. Maybe this one was looking after the salt on the jerky. He for sure wasn't after answers. I chunked a pine cone at him. He ran into the outer dark. I drifted off to sleep. Next morning, Brother Charles kicked my bedroll. He set a cup of coffee and a couple biscuits beside my head. When I crawled out, Monhel was nowhere in sight. Something caught his interest, Brother Charles said. A what pity passed through here before daylight. Maybe that's it. If he's not back when we leave, he'll find us soon enough. 
Monhell showed up when I was finishing my coffee. He slinked into camp and crawled under my knees. Hackles were up. What's the matter, boy? Something bothering you? We'd best pack up and move out, Brother Charles said. If Monhell didn't like what he saw, we probably won't either. The woods were deadly quiet. This time of morning, we should have heard jays, ravens, nuthatches, something. I strapped on my six-shooter and picked up my Winchester. A few minutes later, we were headed south toward Frijoles Canyon. We didn't know what had spooked Monhell as we walked in silence, till the sun was up well in the sky. Monhell stuck close to my side. We came to the edge of a mesa overlooking the Rio Grande Valley. Off to the east, the Sangre de Cristos were white from the first snow. A cool wind rose up from the valley a thousand feet below. Cottonwoods lining the river were a ribbon of gold. A pair of hawks floated down the, below the lip of the mesa. Cottonwoods are glorious this time of year, Brother Charles said. Wonder if Coronado saw them when he passed this way, what, three, four hundred years ago? Searching for something he never found. The real gold was right here. How many centuries have Cottonwoods been changing colors? Thousands? Hundreds of thousands? How many centuries have we marveled at them? Maybe the hawks have seen them all. Oh, wonderful. You will note um, that uh, I pronounced his name Monhell. And I've been pronouncing it wrong the entire time, so my apologies for that. No, although no, that's although thematically, I'm on target with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's completely understandable, and I, I didn't think we would get into it, so I wasn't going to, to change your mind about it about it because I think people will pronounce it that way. But when he when he calls him Monhell, he says, I pronounce it uh the way you would in Mexican, basically is what he says. And now do you say that I remember that and I just Yeah. I so love the idea that he's called Mango because he's such a accident prone dog. <laughs> yeah. Well and I said yeah. and it rhymes with mongrel and Monhell somewhat rhymes with mongrel. Right. But, you know, and what I was trying to get across to the reader is, if they know any Spanish, you know, angel is not angel. You know, it's on hell. Ah. Sorry, uh, sorry I picked that passage no, up. I, I love that passage. And, in fact, that is one of the two that I had thought of before. So I'm very glad you picked that one. I think it's wonderful. Good. Now, my favorite Dennis McCarthy novel is The Gospel According to Billy the Kid. But one of the things we ask all our guests is, What's your favorite Cormac McCarthy novel and why? Can you focus on one or narrow it down to a few? My two favorite novels are Blood Meridian and Sutri. And I would probably, would be, it would be hard, to, actually probably hard for me to say. I had, I had said in the past when people asked me that question, I've said Sutri is my favorite. Part of it is because Sutri is the country I grew up in, sure. the town I grew up in, the characters I grew up with. And there's so many extraordinary things in that book. In fact, when the Cormac McCarthy Society published a collection on Setri, I wrote the preface to it. And in that preface, I said, it's the greatest piece of prose poetry in the English language. Or something to that effect. I don't remember exactly what I said, but that was that was that was the gist of it. Uh, I just the language in it is beautiful. The conversation in it is beautiful. There are lines in there 
that just, I mean, they just blow me away. And for somebody who wasn't a part of it, you know, you'd say, what? (laughs) (laughs) The way it opens up is spectacular. Dear friend, you know, the first two words of it, dear friend. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that whole first paragraph is it's just a gorgeous piece of of uh, poetry. Uh, there are lines. There's a character in it of a uh, a dobro player who's riding on a on a skateboard. Basically, you know, he has no legs and he sits on a skateboard, and, right. and he's sitting on Market Square, and and uh, he's playing his dobro, and and Sutri walks by and he says, "Get him, get him, Walter." <laughs> and, and you know, and I can. I can hear that. That that language, yeah. Cormac had such an extraordinary ear for that language, for that conversation. And when in a lot of his novels, when he I just feel like he had a, an ear for conversation that like nobody else has. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and it's just spectacular. Uh, I've read both, reread both books, Blood Meridian and uh, Sutri. Uh, in the last few years, and at this point, it would be hard hard for me to say because there are there are things in Blood Meridian that are just so incredibly exquisite. There's a section in there about a grizzly carrying off a Delaware, and the Delaware is going at and hunting for him. Right, you know, it runs on for four or five pages, and it's exhausting. Right. Uh, you know, there are famous passages like when the Comanches come up over the hill, you know, after after they've attacked the wagon train. That, that's absolutely extraordinary. But but this little section, I haven't seen anybody talk about that section about when he goes after the Delawares, when the, when the Delawares go after the bear, trying to find uh, their their friend who they never find. But it's. You know, I say, you know, where in the world did that stuff come from? It really is sweet, you know, just amazing what he does with it. And so far, no one on the podcast has really been able to just narrow it down to one book. It's always two to three, and I'll talk about one. So I think we're all pretty much in agreement that these are just works of genius in there. The one thing that really blows me away about Cormac is he's written, what, 11, 12 novels or so. And I don't know anyone else in English literature, who's been able to produce 11 or 12 works of genius without a dud in there somewhere. Right. You know, like one that's not a dud, but it's just, you know, just really doesn't work all that well. Every book that Cormac wrote is just, it's a masterpiece yep. as far as I'm concerned. Now, of course, you know, you say, well, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Dennis, you're his brother. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, you know, and, and there's certainly... Uh, a bias there. But I, I think you're right. I think obviously we all have our preferences for our, our favorite novels that he's written, but this is something Diane Luce brought up. He's never written a bad novel and or a weak one. And you really can't say that about Faulkner, Fable and the Reavers are, are certainly not at the same level oh. the earlier books. Uh you know, and uh <laughs> Hemingway's across the river and into the trees is has nothing it can't compare remotely with his first three novels yeah. and here we have a brother who who's the road has so far i think probably been more people's favorite who've come on the podcast than anything else which is astounding it's here you know the, a novel he's written at that point in his career 
it is shows just all that strength and grandeur that in moving into kind of different stylistic territory than he'd been in with those those earlier two you mentioned. It's astounding how he sustains that level of artistic pitch throughout his career. Yeah, and how many people have cited the last paragraph of The Road, for example? I think at least 3 million and 12. And <laughs> That's about We'll right. be up to 13 yeah. here before the end of the discussion, I imagine, 3, 3 million and 13. It shows up an awful lot, and it means a whole lot of different things to different people as well. So. Absolutely, absolutely. But look at the last paragraph in Setri. Uh, you probably can't re- pull that up out of your head, but I can. I- and uh, his 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 hounds lie all wares, and they tear they tire not. Is that pretty close to? Very good. Pretty close to. Very good. That's very well. Setri's in my my personal pantheon, as is Blood Meridian. I, I'm waiting for the point where I have to talk about this, and I'm having a hard time narrowing it down beyond four or five. So I certainly can't tease my guests for not being able to narrow it down either, because it's it's awful rough to do. Well, when people ask me who've never read Cormac and they say, where, where should I begin? I usually say, try all the pretty horses. That's the same one I choose. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's really accessible to anybody. Right. And it's also firing on all cylinders. It's also, not only is it accessible, it's also very, just a wonderful book. Oh yeah. No, it's a, it is an, ex, it's an extraordinary book. It's uh, but, but then as Diane says, they're all extraordinary. Right. Exactly. Dennis, I, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I so appreciate your willingness to share it with me and with the listeners on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. We do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Scott. It's it, it was a starters. It was a pleasure to do it, but I have to say it was a real honor too. And I thank you for asking me to do this, and uh, and I congratulate you on your overall work. When I listen to the other podcasts, I think you're doing a marvelous job. I don't know what to do when you run out of. Uh, Cormac novels, you know, but I guess you keep going and talk about other things about it. Well, stuff. I think what we'll probably do is we, as we eventually work our way through these different subjects and novels, we'll circle back around to some of these again, okay. because different people have different readings of them. And at some point it's probably, I won't say exhausted. There might be a point where we'll have to give it up, but I think we've got quite a few of these ahead of us still. Yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> it'll get you busy for another six months or so, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and hopefully uh, people still want to hear this after the pandemic lets them get back outside and they've all had their vaccinations uh, again. So, Okay, Scott. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to today's guest, Dennis McCarthy, the author of The Gospel According to Billy the Kid, published by the University of New Mexico Press and available everywhere they sell books. Uh, we're excited to hear about his upcoming second novel, And he, his wife, Judy, and his beagle, Sammy, live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which is a shame. Download us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. We're so 21st century now that we're on Twitter, and you can even find us on Facebook. And Dennis, thank you so much. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Take care.